The New Testament text is from the Gospel according to Mark. It's from chapter 1, verses 16 through 34. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, uh, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed with demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, as you can tell the, uh, from the bulletin, the title of this sermon is The King is in Charge, or The King in Charge. Another thing, another way uh, I could have... Uh, named it, uh, is Aslan's on the Move, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia and the fact that Aslan, the great lion in the story, is a, is a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you get that, that, that reference. Three things to think about, though, as we see the, the king in command. Um, one of those things is he gathers disciples. We see that there in the very first part of this passage that I read verses 16 through 20. He's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He sees some men fishing, Simon and Andrew, and then again, James and John. And he calls to them and they respond immediately. There's that word, immediately. I told you, you're going to hear it a lot uh, in this uh, gospel. And the reason is, of course, that as I noted in the first sermon, there was an audience that, uh, that Mark, John Mark had in view when he wrote his gospel. Now, one of the things you know as, as a writer is that, well, hopefully, there are people out there who read your stuff, and very often, you know, you have someone in mind, kind of a, kind of a type or a certain sort of person. And that's true for John Mark. Uh, he had Romans in mind. And one of the things that you can see with regard to 
Roman culture and, and the values uh, of the Roman people is that there's a strong emphasis on action. There's a strong emphasis on, on heroic action, in fact. And uh, if you're familiar at all with the history of the, of the Roman people, you can see many examples of that. Uh, but here we see the Lord Jesus in that kind of superhero mode, you could say. Now, he's not pretending to be something he's not. He's not LARPing, as they say, you know, live-action role-playing or something like that. This is his real, this is the real deal. He is what you see. Um, and as I thought about, about this, it occurred to me that he's behaving in a way that's unfamiliar to many of us. He's behaving like a master would behave. Now, you know, we in our own lives can respect people and maybe even uh, have some mentors in our lives that we spend time with. And, and in, in, in a situation uh, such as that, when there's a mentor and a kind of mentee relationship, there's advice that, you know, a mentor provides. And I've had, you know, probably five or six mentors over the course of my life, and I really valued their input. And, took what they had to say to heart, but I didn't really think of it like uh, as though they were commanding me to do things. They were more or less saying, well, you know, if you want to, you know, get this result, then I suggest behaving in this way or doing this thing. There wasn't uh, a sense that, wow, our relationship is based entirely on my obedience. <laughs> it's sort of like, well, I can take it or leave it. And very often, uh, those mentors, you know, had that same frame of mind. Well, if you want to take this advice, great. If you don't, you know, that's your problem. <laughs> that kind of thing. But in this relationship, that's not what we see at all. We see in, instead a master. And uh, the very first thing he has to say is, follow me. It's not as though he's making a suggestion, in other words. He's, he's issuing a command. He's saying, you need to follow me. and Leave everything and just do it. Follow me. Now, the reason he's gathering disciples is he's looking for human tape recorders. Now, they didn't have tape recorders in the day, right? But he wanted some men who could uh, hear what he had to say and repeat it. That's really uh, what that whole operation was about. They were going to become apostles. The word apostle, is, you know, is come from the Greek apostolos, which means someone who's sent. And in order to have something to say, you got to know what to say. And so over the course of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, they're there to witness him in action because they need to remember the things he does. But they also need to remember the things he says. Now, there's something in the, in the study of the Gospels that's known as the synoptic problem. Has anybody heard of the synoptic problem? A few of you have. Okay, let me tell you what the synoptic problem is. It's not really a problem if you understand it in the right way. It's actually something you should be encouraged about. But particularly when you look at Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you'll see uh, almost word-for-word, -word, verbatim, descriptions of particular events. Now, you know, one of the things, or, in, or particular sayings. Now, one of the things, you know, one of the conclusions that various uh, scholars have, have arrived at with regard to this is that there's a kind of interdependency between the texts. And they try to date the different texts and they say, well, Mark was probably the, the first text, and then you had Matthew, and then you had Luke, and they're all kind of, you know, copying. They're just kind of looking at each, other, at each, at each other's homework <laughs> and just writing it all down. And so that's kind of the prevailing uh, way that you find, you know, in the Academy of explaining the synoptic problem. It never 
occurs to these people, probably because they've never been traveling evangelists, that um, there's another way to think about it. There's another explanation. And the reason why I know this is the case is because I have been a traveling speaker. Now, the great thing about being a traveling speaker is this. You can say the same thing again and again and again. And you can get really, really good at it so that everybody thinks you're the greatest public speaker who has ever lived. But that's because you've said it a million times. Now, the Lord wants them to remember. And this is not like broadcast radio. The only way you get the word out is by going from town to town. And you don't make up new things every time you find yourself in a new place. You have a message. And you're looking to publish it, distribute it, and get as many people familiar with it as possible. And those disciples heard those parables a million times. They heard the Sermon on the Mount again and again. They can remember it on the plane. They can remember it on the mount. They can remember all the other times that they didn't record it being, you know, given. It just is, I'm confident, the way it worked because they were supposed to what? Remember, 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 remember what I'm saying. Now, also, if you're told there's going to be a test, right, and you need to remember everything you're told, guess what you do? You listen really closely. You repeat what you hear over and over again to make sure you get it right. And that, I'm confident, is what happened. So we have a problem that's not really a problem. But they're called. Uh, they're, not, they're not applying for a job. In other words, the job uh, comes to them. If you notice that in the Gospels, and we'll get to some epi, you know, sort of examples of this, that the Lord is never really all that keen on volunteers. They come up to him and say, hey, I want to follow you. And he says, are you sure about that? Do you know what's going to happen to me? Can you, know, you really do what I, you, know, you, you think you can? And they're like, oh, yeah. What are they thinking about? They're thinking about glorious victories. You know, they're thinking about you know, being a part of the the new administration. <laughs> you know, they're thinking about their connections and the influence that they'll have in this new order of things, the kingdom of God. That's what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about suffering. They're not thinking about taking up the cross. And that's what Jesus does every once in a while. He says, hey guys, it's time to thin the ranks a little bit. We got too many stragglers, hangers on here. So I'm gonna do that for you right now. Uh, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Whoa. It's in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, there was a person that came up to him at one point and said, you know, I really want to follow you, Lord, but first I need to go and bury my parents. And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, he draws the line and says, you need to get on board or you're not on board. That's just the way it is. So he issues commands. And he's got uh, this uh, in mind. And by the way, this, this still works uh, this way in certain places. It's fascinating where it tends to be the case. It tends to be in sort of, older institutions. So I remember uh, when I lived in Boston, we uh, were thinking about where to send our oldest son, Caleb, to school. And uh, it occurred to me that maybe Roxbury Latin, the oldest all-male school in the Western Hemisphere, would be a good place to go and kind of explore and check out. It's, it's even older than Harvard. It's got an enormous endowment. It's just super elite. And so we went over to Roxbury Latin to check it out. And I remember driving up, and there was the Union Jack. In case you don't know what the Union Jack is, the British flag. 
<laughs> still there. And uh, all of the students, all the male students, were to refer to their teachers as, guess what? Master. Master so-and-so, master so-and-so, master so-and-so. Because you were expected to do what you were told. That's it. I experienced the same thing at Harvard. It was fascinating. Uh, you know, generally when you go to a, like a public uh, you know, university, you know, you sign up for a class and you just kind of get in the class. You just show up, you know, and you know, the, the professor has a list of students who signed up and just is given the list and that's where it ends. That's how, how the story you know, unfolds. Not there. The professor has to sign you in. I remember classes where you had to write a paper to get into the class. And the professor would say, no, not good enough. No class for you. <laughs> remember the soup Nazi? Yeah. But anyway, uh, it was kind of what it was like. But it's a whole different world with a whole set, different set of expectations. And uh, as a result, there was a whole different set of outcomes. Do you remember Chariots of Fire, that marvelous film about the runners uh, in the Olympic Games? I can't remember what year, but it was, I think, between World War II or World War I and World War II, right after the First World War, if I remember correctly, in Paris. Right, and there was a, a fellow named Abrams. He was an aspirant, ambitious young man, a runner. He wanted to win. And so he wanted some help. So he went to a, a man named Sam Mazzabini, who was a coach. And this was, bad, this was not, considered, uh, not considered an appropriate uh, way to behave at that time. And he asked uh, Mazzabini, uh, would you be my coach? And Mazzabini said, Mr. Abrams, when the woman comes into your life that you want to marry, and if she were to ask you, will you marry me, what would you say? He said, I'd be, I'd be kind of, Appalled, and he said, "That's the situation we have here. <laughs> yeah, I will watch you, and if I think you have some potential, I'll ask you to be your coach." That's kind of the, the dynamic. But anyway, uh, what you have here is the Lord is calling men that He has selected, and He expects them to respond, and He's calling them to to do what? To be apprentices? To to learn a trade and make a living? No, he's actually calling them to become fishers of men. You ever wonder why we have the ichthus, you know, that little fish that we put on the back of our cars? You know, essentially when you use the fish, the ichthus, by the way, is an acronym that stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Uh, that's what each of the letters in Greek spell. It also happens to spell fish. It's interesting. But the ichthus is intended to convey the fact that you've been caught. <laughs> I was a fish, and I've been caught. I've been brought in uh, and presented to the Lord. And so the apostles are to, are to be sent out to catch some fish, uh, to uh, be fishers of men. And it means that they're to go out not to make a living, but to help other people find a living, the life of the kingdom of God, eternal life, is what they're supposed to proclaim. Then uh, we have here in this next uh, episode, verses 21 and 22, remarkable uh, uh, statements about how Jesus went about doing his work as a teacher. Uh, let me read it to you uh, to remind you uh, how it goes. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there is that word again, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That's an interesting statement. What were the scribes like? How come there's this uh, remarkable distinction that they make between the way scribes taught and the way the Lord taught? Well, we're told that the Lord taught as though he spoke with authority or he spoke with authority, which implies that the scribes did not. Well, how did they teach? Generally, they taught by quoting other people. Uh, the Talmud is a oral commentary uh, on the law. And generally, uh, scribes would say, you know, such and such a rabbi said this and then that rabbi said this, and consequently we need to kind of like do our best to try to sort it all out and apply what we, we know in terms of how those things were addressed. Another thing to keep in mind is the Mishnah. Are you familiar with the Mishnah? Mishnah was the, the hedge about the law. And so what would happen is that um, because there was such a strong desire to make sure that the law was obeyed, uh, they didn't want people to get anywhere near disobeying it. And so the way to make certain that that didn't happen is by actually creating new rules, kind of to make certain that those core rules would never even get, you know, you never even get close to breaking them. So the Mishnah was the hedge about the law. And the Pharisees were really uh, remarkably sort of uh, well known for developing these new standards uh, that uh, were intended to make certain that people didn't disobey the law. But here we have the Lord Jesus speaking uh, with a in an authoritative voice. Now, the word authority is an interesting word. I'd like to reflect on it with you a little bit. Have you noticed, I've mentioned this before in other, in other sermons, there's only an itty bit of difference between the word author and authority. Literally, I-T-Y, right? Itty. <laughs> Authority, author, authority, and that gets you to the, to the very root uh, concept, octor, which is Latin, which means maker, or origin, or originator, or source. So the one who has authority is the one who has not just made the rules, but just actually just made what it is that he has authority over. So just imagine yourself as, a, say, a an entrepreneur and you get a business off the ground, uh, do you have authority uh, in the thing that you brought into existence? Of course. And everybody would acknowledge that. Uh, an author of a book has authority over uh, what can be in the book and what shouldn't be in the book and even how the book should be understood. I had this remarkable uh, interview that I read with Ray Bradbury, the author of Fahrenheit 451. And he was brought into a college classroom to talk about the work. And there, there were all these people who had their, their takes on, on what it meant. And he just got and said, no, 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 that's not what it meant. And he corrected them, but they wouldn't believe him. So he wasn't even considered an authority over his own work. But uh, ideally, that is the case. And what does that say to us? It gives us a clue as to Jesus' identity, right? He is the author. He is the one who was the very means by which you and I came into existence. Have you ever really given much consideration to that? Generally speaking, when we think about the Lord, we think about someone who lived you know, approximately 2,000 years ago and did many remarkable things, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then that's where it stops. But who is this guy? 
God's Son. That's who. What does that mean? Well, look at John's Gospel, first chapter, first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we're told that nothing was made that wasn't that came into existence without him. Let me take you to another passage. This is uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to take a look at verses 15 to 20 there. I don't think I'll get all the way to 20. I'll just read verse 17. This is referring to the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over uh, all creation. Meaning firstborn doesn't mean as though he... Uh, came into existence, it means that he is the firstborn in the sense that he's the heir, the one for whom all things are made. So let me go on and read verse uh, 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. So, the source of his authority is the fact that he's your source. Through him, you came into existence. It's not as though, you know, he was introduced to you as an afterthought later on in life after you'd had a chance to mess everything up. Now, he's the one through whom you came into existence, and he speaks to you uh, as your savior, of course, but also as your creator. This is a, a doctrine that I think needs to be more fully developed and appreciated because uh, I think we don't have an appreciation for it. Now, what we're told uh, following this is that he is proclaiming a message, and uh, as he proclaims that message, uh, some things occur, and uh, what is demonstrated uh, is the kingdom of God's uh, presence. The kingdom of God is at hand, and we see evidence for that in a couple of remarkable things. One is uh, we see his authority demonstrated over supernatural evil, and then we see his authority demonstrated over natural evil. The, the demonstration of his authority over supernatural evil is that remarkable uh, exorcism that occurs in the synagogue. Let me read, it, read that to you again, uh, just to remind you how it goes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? Pretty remarkable stuff. And what it does, of course, is it communicates uh, his authority. And one of the things I think that it at least does for me is it, asks, it brings up uh, something in my own mind, and that is, if it, uh, this demon recognized him and, and was able to see his true identity, why is it that we're so blind to that? Do we recognize him uh, even as this demonic spirit recognized him? I don't know. I think oftentimes not. 
But the other thing I, I think it's worth reflecting on is where this uh, deliverance occurred. This wasn't out in the middle of the street, wasn't just in someone's house. In fact, it was actually in God's house, in the synagogue, which should, I guess, unnerve us and give us a sense that sometimes things can go drastically wrong in God's house. And one of the things that we should remember, and this is from 1 Peter, uh, is that judgment begins where? The house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. Let me take you to that passage. It's chapter 4, I believe it's verse 17 of uh, Peter, 1 Peter. And there uh, Peter tells us uh, what follows. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the judgment begins in the synagogue, but it doesn't end there. It will pass over the surface of the entire world. What follows is this uh, episode uh, in Simon's house. So this is, of course, Peter. So after a, you know, a busy synagogue uh, visit, uh, they head over to Simon's house. And, uh, well, let me read the story to you, beginning verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So they're, you know, it's Sabbath dinner time. You know, had a busy morning. It's time to enjoy some food and to relax a bit. But we have a problem. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever, what, left her. And then immediately she began to serve them. So we have is... We have a problem that's addressed that is in the house of God, but then what follows is a problem that's addressed in the house of one of his disciples. And in the course of healing her, we see that the outcome is service. There's obviously gratitude that she uh, felt for having been healed. But I think it also reflects the fact that we as people who have been uh, helped and saved, healed by our Savior, ought to respond in the same way wherever we find ourselves. To rise up, acknowledge that the one who healed us is our king, and serve him. I want to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on something that perhaps puzzles you. Did you notice that he doesn't let the demon speak? What's up with that? Let me take you back to those passages where we're told about that. Look at verse 25. There in verse 25, right after the, the, the demon acknowledges his true identity, Jesus rebukes him and says, Be silent and come out of him. And then at the very end, in verse 34, we're told after he cast out demons, uh, he would not permit the demons to speak because, what? They knew him. Now we're going to see later on in the course of the gospel that this is not uh, just limited to demons. There are people who are healed who, and who are told, don't tell anybody what just happened. What is this all about? I mean, aren't we supposed to be witnesses? Aren't we supposed to go out and tell everybody what we have had, you know, in, you know God, or what God did for us and share the good news with folks about that? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? 
Well, yes, but at this particular point, something that is referred to as the messianic secret is, is uh, still uh, in effect. Because, and I talked about this a little bit last week, timing matters. Timing matters. Our Lord comes into the world with a purpose in mind to serve, and in order for that to be served, the timing has to be right for a number of things when they occur to occur. I'm thinking principally of his sacrifice for us. It had to be at a certain time. It had to be in a certain place and so forth. When I'm proposing to you, I don't present to you as like the final explanation, the, the, the only way to, to understand this messianic secret and why he tells the demons to not tell anybody or tells people not to tell anybody. But I think it does uh, fit into a larger framework that we do see in the Gospels. If you think about the dialogue that occurs between Jesus and his brothers in John chapter 7, particularly verse 6, his brothers don't even believe in him. Even though he does remarkable things and his fame is spreading, they don't, they don't believe him. Have you ever noticed that a prophet isn't honored in his hometown and maybe it's even worse in his own family? You know, it's a dynamic to consider. But, you know, they, they taunt him. They say, hey, if you're going to be a public figure, you should, you should get out there, man. You should get out and, uh, you know, let everybody know who you are and present yourself uh, for people to, to appreciate your, you know, your work. And Jesus says, you know what, with you guys, any time is as good as any other. And the reason is, is because the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me. Interesting. It doesn't hate you, but it hates me. Therefore, when I permit them to express their hatred for me, it'll be on my terms, where I choose, and serve the purpose that I am pursuing, not theirs. Something I think that's worth keeping in mind when it comes to our own interactions with people. <laughs> you always want to control the uh, terms of engagement. You want the high ground. You want your own agenda to be served through the confrontation. You don't want to just simply become you know, the object of ridicule or some reason why uh, other people are able to attack you. So timing is important. Now, I've kind of gone you know, from here to there in the course of this sermon. And as I was thinking about how do I wrap this up, this is what occurred to me. What we see in the work of Christ is his authority. And when it comes to our needs and the salvation that we long for, we need him to exercise his authority in our lives. And his authority is exercised often by what he says and his commands. And he's able, through his commands, to deliver us, right, from supernatural and natural evil. Which implies that it's not so much your words or my words that really win the day when it comes to the needs that we have. It's his words. But there is a place for us. There is something for us to do. Our words do matter in one respect. Prayer. Over the course of my life, I've, take, I've learned to take what I have to say uh, less and less seriously. My words are not uh, as efficacious as I wish they were. Uh, 
One of the things that I've been, truly been impressed with is my own impotence <laughs> to make the world a better place. I've on occasion, you know, applied myself to the task, tried my best, and found myself with nothing to show for it. At the same time, over the course of the years, there have been remarkable occurrences in my life that have resulted from prayer. What I've asked for when I've prayed is for God to say something, for God to do something that I can't do. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that God's word accomplishes whatever he sets for it to do, whatever purpose it's, it's intended to serve, it will happen, it will be done. Which means that we ought to become really good at repeating what we've been told, like those disciples. Remember I told you about you know, listening closely, putting to, you know, trying to remember what, you, what you've heard so that, that you can remind yourself, but also tell other people about it. It's God's word that makes the difference. God's word in Christ that makes the difference in our lives and in the lives of the people we care about. And prayer is the most effective use of the language that you have. You ought to go to the Lord first in prayer. Ask Him. You have not because you ask not. Why don't you ask? Why don't you ask? Get better at asking. <laughs> That's my encouragement for, uh, to you this morning. Get better at asking. Go to the Lord in prayer and trust Him and rely on Him to speak into the situations that you find yourself in. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, what we see in the, in the work and ministry of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have his words that have been uh, heard and remembered and put, on, uh, put uh, into writing and have been handed down to us over the generations. Thank you for the work of your Spirit in keeping the disciples faithful uh, and helping them to remember what they have been told we pray, Lord, that that would be true for us, that we would remember what our Lord has said and that we would uh, attend to the, the things that he said and we would obey. Uh, he is our master. And I pray, too, Lord, that you'll help us to be more prayerful. Help us, Lord, to ask you or to call out to you uh, for the things that we need and we want to see in our lives, whether the, the situation is in our home or in our community or at our place of employment or even in our country. Help us, Lord, to be more prayerful uh, and to use the language that you have uh, made it possible for us to, to employ, to express ourselves to you, because you are the one who can make the difference. In Christ's name, amen.